Hello, and thanks for joining in. I'm Jana Harmon, and you're listening to the Sci-B Podcast, where we listen to the other side. Sometimes we look at others and we think they will never change their views, their lives, their decisions, what they believe. Sometimes we think to ourselves, we will never change our views, our lives, our decisions, our beliefs. That certainly was the case for the majority of the 52 former atheists that I've interviewed. Two-thirds of them thought they would never change from being an atheist, much less become a Christian. That begs the million-dollar question. What would it take for someone to change their lives so dramatically? More than that, what did it take? What was the catalyst that turned someone so resolute against God to a place of openness towards God, more specifically, towards Jesus Christ? In my research, the catalyst was different for different people. There's certainly not one size fits all. For some, it was sudden. For others, quite gradual. For some, it was a crisis moment. For others, it was along the process of their life. It may have been prompted by existential dissatisfaction, looking for something more in life. For others, it may have been a quest to disprove religion or even to quest for truth itself. Still others, it was an unlikely spiritual experience. It may have been meeting a Christian for the first time who completely broke down their negative stereotypes of Christianity. Someone who was intelligent and kind and, well, normal. Someone who makes Christianity look attractive, even plausible. Each person's story is different. If you've been listening to these stories of change through this podcast, I would encourage you to begin actively searching for and identifying the catalyst. That thing or combination of things that moved someone towards considering another life-changing perspective. Today's story is of a former atheist, someone, if you looked on from the outside, you would never in a million years think they would ever change. But change, he certainly did. Not only did his own life dramatically change, but since his conversion to Christianity, he has spent his life helping many others see things differently as well. I hope you'll listen closely to his surprising journey to see if you can identify the catalyst that opened him towards another direction. Welcome to the Cybe Podcast, Stuart. It's so great to have you. My privilege to be here. Look forward to talking with you. Well, we're looking forward to hearing your story. Uh, but before we get into the story, Stuart, why don't you tell me a little bit about who you are, where you live, perhaps what you do? Well, I am uh, originally from Glasgow in Scotland and um, was uh, raised in a, a non-Christian home. Um, became a Christian when I was just turning 21 in uh, Glasgow in Scotland and then pretty much uh, got involved in a call to mission right from the beginning of my Christian life. So I moved to Vienna, Austria, where I was working um, as a part of a team uh, taking Bibles and literature into the communist world at that time. 
I uh, operated there for a number of years and uh, actually met my wife, who was from America, Mary, uh, on the team, was married in Chattanooga, then went back to Vienna. And both my kids, Cameron, my daughter, Catherine, who works here in Atlanta, uh, were born in Austria, where we lived for in total 20 years. So brought me to sunny Atlanta from Glasgow through Vienna, Austria, to this beautiful city of Atlanta. It sounds like you, you've, you've journeyed quite a long way in your life since atheism. Why don't we go back to the beginning? Mm. And uh, I guess this would be in Scotland. Yeah. And why don't you talk with me a bit about what life is like in Scotland in terms of, I guess, worldview or view of God or those kinds of things that were in your world as you were growing up? Yes, well, the, the Scotland I grew up in, of course, Scotland has a rich um, Christian heritage, but that's a long way off now. I mean, many people would see Scotland today, and particularly as I was growing up, as um, very much a secular country. Um, my dad was the product of the Second World War, in a sense. You know, he'd been a young man in the Royal Air Force. And the home that I grew up in, my mother had actually fled Christianity. She had been uh, raised in a very devout Nazarene home, kind of holiness-type church. And she had chafed against the, the restrictions and, the, if you like, some of the – she loved her parents but hated the, the restrictions of the kind of life. So dad became a ticket out to her. So when they met, fell in love and got married – um, really, it was it was a, a a new beginning for her. And so the home I grew up in was one in which there was kind of a religious background, roughly because of mum's background, but they had really chosen very much a kind of a party lifestyle in a sense. I don't mean that in a, an overt way, but I mean the drinking and smoking was became a big thing to my mother for some reason, and at the weekends that was a, a big part of our household. But for me, growing up in terms of ideas. Um, it was very much um, the post-war years, things, economics were a bit tight. Um, and as far as Christianity went, there was very little presence of other than the symbols of Scotland. But I never saw it as having any any uh, traction or relevance or value in my life whatsoever. And my interests were just more like a little boy, the usual kind of things of adventure and having excitement and fun. And that's pretty much the way it was until my teen years. So you didn't, you may have had some kind of cultural reference of God or Jesus on a building somewhere, perhaps, but it obviously wasn't in your home. Yes, um, my grandmother was, was devout, and I really didn't like her uh, because of her religion. <laughs> she, um, you know, she had, I guess, what I'd hear a quote, Bible verses are now and again, but I was a I was kind of a raucous kid, and I think you know not a kid that stayed within the lines, which led to when I became a teenager. Then um, my parents saw me being drawn to a gang culture in the east side of Glasgow. So my dad, being at that time doing well in his business, bought a house on the west side of Glasgow, which is a more middle class area, and I hated it from day one, um, right from the beginning. As I went to the school there, I was. Uh, just alienated and ended up um, skipping class most of the time. And then, as many young teenagers do in Scotland, I found my way to get uh, alcohol. And, you know, usually if you went hung around pubs, you could get some drunk to buy you booze and started getting drunk <laughs> at an early age. So 
that really began a, a pattern that was to have a kind of a sad outcome in my early teens, actually. So, so you you really pushed against convention. It sounds like you wanted to go your own way from a from an early age. I guess did you find other friends, or were you part of that gang culture, or did you find other friends that reinforced that kind of dark lifestyle or party yeah. lifestyle? There was there was I. I like kids do, you find the the other kids who are the wild kids. So there was a guy in particular, this this uh, Ian Castle was a friend and I, we teamed up and he was the one that introduced me to Alice Cooper and some of these things. So there was music that was at that time, it was that real sort of youth rage kind of music, Alice Cooper being the kind of a uh, there. And of course the Stones and the Beatles were more in the background. They were classic groups, but this more angry rock. And then so drinking and fighting particularly, it all led to a conclusion where, uh, I came home drunk one night and uh, ended up getting into a major fight with my father as he had seen I'd been drinking and he actually hit me and then I all this pent up rage towards him came out. So I had this knockdown slap out fight which led to me then um, basically leaving home when I was 15 years of age. So that, that was the beginning of my – I mean, it sounds astonishing now, but I think about a career going on your own, having your own apartment – trying to get a job at 15 years of age. It sounds so bizarre, but that's where I began. Wow. What was that life like, trying to survive on your own as a teenager? Well, there was two pieces to it. First was the excitement of being on your own and having nobody to tell you what to do. But the other part was the survival. I mean, I I didn't know how to wash my own clothes, didn't know how to cook my food, and I didn't realize that money that I was earning, which wasn't terribly much at that point, had to go to pay my rent and cover my costs, you know. Um, but what it did do is it brought me into a world where I guess I was seeking a new family. And during that time, I uh, ended up beginning to work in a dance hall as a bouncer, um, a guy that had uh, invited me and met, we had met in the, pl- the shop I was working in. And that opened up a whole new world for me. This was the world of, you know, parties and girls. And I mean, a a dance hall, when I say a a discotheque, there were about 1,500 to 2,000 kids over the weekend. So it was a huge place. And I was part of the uh, security team there. And yeah, that just brought me into a new way of just living for my passions and pleasures, really, you know. So that was... uh... A sense your your life just living for the moment, living for pleasure. That was was that your personal philosophy in life? Just kind of eat, drink, marry, and then well, we die. Or, or it, grew, it grew to be that I I I got recruited by a guy who was a part of a, a car business uh, and but in, in, involved in Glasgow's darker side, and he looked, he wanted a young drivers to drive cars from uh, one place to another. And I didn't have a driver's license, but I ended up working for him. And he took a shine to me and I liked what it was. These were tough, hard men on the south side of Glasgow. And of course, I began to get trusted as a, as a faithful lieutenant. So I was in that world and things began driving nice cars, earning a bit of money, beginning to do some stupid things. And yeah, my philosophy became, um, I mean, just being wild and free, I guess, you know, I can remember we would have these drunken parties and sometimes we'd buy so much, you know, beer and, and uh, whatever, vodka usually. And we would joke that we'd drink till we, you know, we passed out. Well, the only one that ever did it as far as I remember was me. The other guys, I remember, well, I, maybe I drank so much I conked out first, but um, 
they would always laugh because we would then do, you know, such stupid things. So yeah, that was the world and, and, and everything in that seemed that that was the trajectory, just live for passion and pleasure. Also um, against my dad's parents' middle-class lifestyle. I was, you know, involved in a kind of criminal set and seemed to rejoice just that suckers live by rules. And those of us who were the wise dogs just did what it took to get ahead, you know? Right. Right. Wow. It sounds like, I imagine as a teenager living in that world would be somewhat exciting, although a little bit dangerous. Um, yeah. but I guess a, as a young man, though, it seemed like you were living the life in your own way and on your on your own terms. Well, we glorify all this today, Jen. I mean, I look at a lot of movies and things, this kind of stuff, and of course, it's exactly right. It was there was money, and I mean, of course, there are a lot of boring times and hard times and stupid times in the midst of it all. But the 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 idea of thinking in your mind you're a tough guy and that you're making money and you're cool and all this kind of stuff. Well, then in in the midst of that, I was asked to help um, a lady, a, a married woman, who was living as a lover of a, a policeman and had got into some trouble. This guy was kind of extorting her, and I was asked with my colleague to help her out and see if I could get her money back from this cops, which I did. And um, this girl ended up moving in with me. So all of a sudden, she was 23 years old. Um, I was then 18, 19. And, you know, I had this beautiful girl living. She wanted to live with me then, um, driving cars. And I thought everything was, was pretty cool. So I had achieved what I felt was, you know, kind of a nice status in life. And I was pretty happy with the way things were at that point, you know? Right, right. Wow. So with with achieving this nice status, you had a girl, you know, you had a job, and you were getting along. So there was really no sense or, or even thought of God in your life. Was there any kind of spirituality or interest in, in anything well, or exposure to or anything like that during this time? There was some very dark stuff. Um, this was around the time, I don't know if you remember the, the Peter Blatty, the film The Exorcist. Yes. Um, well, I was. I had some friends who were occultists, at least that's what they said. I didn't really believe it. But I had gone and saw that film, and I have to say it really freaked me out. It scared me. I don't know why. I mean, I didn't believe in God, so I thought. But I certainly seemed to believe in the devil. And then with my colleagues one night, a party I was ha having in my apartment, um, these guys a couple of them went off in another room with some of the girls and they were supposedly doing some kind of seance thing. And anyway, something did happen. I mean, there was a, there was something happened. Remember there was a, like a sound, like a cracking on a window. The whole place went very cold and everybody got freaked out. And in fact, the party came to a, a sudden end. And this big friend of mine, big Stuart, I was little Stuart. He was big Stuart. He was absolutely freaked out. Just, I've never seen someone so scared in all my life. He said, something's happened here and we uh, one of our friends was a catholic so we we commissioned him to go and find a priest and come and do something in the house which the priest laughed at and didn't come um but the, the long and short of that was we had to abandon that i moved out of that apartment within about three or four days there was something freaky and that always left a backstop so that was a spiritual thing um but not on the usual variety that um, most people would turn to you know right right so there was this since this presence or exposure to uh, dark spirituality, you felt a touch of it in The Exorcist as a film, but you also felt it 
a, a touch of it in, in your own apartment so much so that you moved out. That must have been incredibly frightening. <laughs> I can't imagine. Um, but I, I'm just curious if you if you encountered or had a sensibility that there was a dark spiritual world, did you did it ever cross your mind that there might have been some alternative form of spirituality that's good or you know or God or any of that? I think the logic side of that would have said I should have done. But I suppose at a deep level, I I, I mean I realized there might be a or I thought there may be God, but I don't know why I just couldn't join the dots and I was too irrational. I think the key that came, and then there, were, there was some follow-through from that because there was some subsequent dark experience. And the only word I could use about that time was was terror, uh, Jana. I, I mean, I'd never felt fear. You know, we'd been in fights and things. I mean, people get scared when you're fighting and you can get hurt or wounded or whatever. But this was a different kind of thing. This was of a whole nother dimension. And the next encouragement or, or encounter with spirituality was when, after a couple of years, Joyce um, came in one day and asked me, what did I think about Jesus? <laughs> and that absolutely threw me for a loop because I never thought anything about Jesus or, I mean, other than the fact, you know, whatever his name was. But um, I thought that he was probably maybe a spaceman who had came to Earth and they had thought, you know, they were so primitive. I mean, it's so naive the way I thought about this, that they, you know, they worshipped him. So I basically had written Christianity off. It had no, no traction whatsoever. But then she um, ended up having a real encounter with, with Christ and became a Christian. And we split up because, I, I mean, I really didn't understand any of that and wasn't interested. So that was the beginning of a more uh, positive turn. Ah, so so even the thought of, of Jesus or her becoming a Christian was very off-putting to you, I guess. And oh, Yeah, there was nothing nothing attractive or, or interesting. I mean, to me... I think I think my philosophy was kind of a Nietzschean view that life was for, you know, um, just take it was a seize whatever you wanted and and keep it and then it was a survival of the fittest type of thing. So probably a lot of ideas that I hadn't really fully understood, but they were in my they were in my bloodstream, and and the idea of any transcendent order of a God or Christ or forgiveness or any of that, even goodness, um, just wasn't there really, you know? Wow. So, so you were willing to give up the relationship because you didn't want to have anything to do with God or Jesus. What happened or proceeded from there? Or actually, I'm curious, how is it that your friend Joyce became a Christian in this world that you all inhabited? Well, there's, there's two things that one was, was that Joyce was really like, now that I know the Bible, um, she was really the woman at the well who had, you know, multiple relationships, m- many men seeking for in, in lust in a sense and relationships um, for love and never finding it. And in desperation, um, while she was with me, she'd had an affair when, when she was, even while she was with me, um, she reached out and went to a church one day. She had been witnessed to by a nice Christian couple in the, in the tax office in Glasgow where she was working. And uh, they had a big impact on her. And then um, she walked into a church and said, I, I need to know, I need to know God. So she, she had a genuine, I mean, a very strong encounter of forgiveness and healing and, and really meeting God. And when, when she told me this, and of course, I, put, I just basically told her to get lost. So for about two or three weeks, we were separated and, and I was mad. And in fact, you know, 
I don't know who this God was, but I thought whoever these Christians are, you know, if I ever meet them, I'll, I'll put them right, you know. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. Well, that's that's who you were, right? You were a bouncer. You were someone who, who didn't mind going after. Yeah. So what that's actually what happened that a couple of weeks later, the Christian friends who I didn't know were praying for me, um, said suggested to Joyce that she contact me and asked me to come to their house. So she called me and and I thought, oh well, but she's coming back. And of course, it wasn't that she she wanted me to meet them. So I mm. went with a chip on my shoulder and ready to do battle, um, and it didn't work out that way. <laughs> what happened? Well, we got there, and um, you know they were obviously they were quite excited to meet me. They were very nice, very. The guy was kind of a soft, gentle human being, which I didn't take to. That wasn't in my world. The wife was a kind of cutie, and I kind of liked her. Um, and I know she was an evangelist. Um, and, of course, Joyce was there, and, and they began to share. And, I, I mean, I began to throw back all kinds of stupid comebacks, which I thought were relevant. But as the night wore on, they, they testified about, you know, who God was, who Jesus was, about sin, about the you know brokenness. And, of course, Joyce gave, you know, continued to tell her testimony. And, um, yeah, I just began to, I don't know how long it was, but eventually became aware there was a a presence. There was something that I couldn't quite put my finger on, um, kind of an intuition of something, but this time not dark, good. Um, And after them sharing for some time, I ended up going up to their bathroom and... uh, because I became convinced it was real, and I thought, "Well, God, if you're there and this is true, and Jesus really, you you are the Lord, then then I need to know you." But I mean, I'm you know, I'm a mess. I need help, and I need forgiveness, and I've done real some real wrong here. So I prayed in their bathroom, and then ended up came down and and told them, and uh, <laughs> they all started hugging me and kidding. That was really a, whoa, you know, that was a bridge uh, too far at that point. But uh, something began then that was the beginning of the story really for me wow what a dramatic shift in such a short period of time in just a moment practically uh, considering how old were you well literally just turning 21 it was just on the cusp of my 21st birthday and um i will say jenna though spent the rest of my life trying to figure it out you know that (laughs) (laughs) was one thing um learning the journey and walking and trying to get a grasp of what it meant and undoing all the stupidities that I had uh, internalized was a big part of this, you know? Right. Because you had been thinking and living in, and it's seemingly the opposite way of what uh, the truth that you had just accepted. So, yeah. Yeah. Everything that, I mean, I stood for was, was so violent. I mean, everything, language, behavior, thought, I mean, it just, and, and you know, violence was a, and anger was a central part of this, you know, because I was really had been kind of a frame to believe that someone crosses you, you hit them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. If the police come in, well, we'll hit them too. I mean, to see if they can get you kind of thing, you know. Um, so it was a, yeah, it was really a messed up idea. We're going to quickly pause our story for a moment so that I can tell you a little bit about the C.S. Lewis Institute. For over 40 years, the Institute has been committed to developing wholehearted disciples of Jesus Christ who will articulate, share, defend, and live their faith in personal and public life. 
please consider making a donation to the C.S. Lewis Institute. To donate, go to our website at www.cslewisinstitute.org and click Donate. Thank you. Now let's get back to our story. So talk with me then about this this sudden change, yet you just chose in that evening because of the reality of the presence of God, of who God is and who you were before God and need of forgiveness. You obviously found that that gospel, that good news of Jesus that, that actually forgives and mm. like Joyce found that loves you no matter what or who you mm. are or what mm. you've done. I imagine that concept by itself was just transformative, but I can imagine how this might play out in your life. I mean, such a sudden change. And like you say, so many things differently. How did your life change? Did you start um, reading the Bible? Did you go to church? What I mean, Your heart, your mind, all of those things. Talk with me about that. Yeah. I mean, gosh, Jenna, it was all, um, it all happened very quickly because I think the passage that struck me very clearly was, you know, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 or 17, first of all, you know, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, you know, he made him in, you know, sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And all of that was really impressed very deeply on my soul right from the beginning. So, I mean, I was told these people who led me to the Lord were very devout and, uh, Encouraged me, of course, to come to their church, which was a brethren assembly in, in the uh, east side of Glasgow. And, you know, the, the Bible and prayer. So, I mean, I was taught, of course, I started from day one just starting to read the Bible. Didn't really understand it very much. But um, I really got into reading nonstop. And, um, and of course, it was like, oh, I couldn't even describe what effect it had on me. It was reading and, and then praying. And, and and I went to this little church, and and, the, and then I started having fellowship with these Christians. And, of course, they were a whole different world. I mean, the way that they talked and act, they didn't swear. They they they, they didn't do any of the wild stuff. Um, and I kept thinking, how this may be kind of boring, I thought. But then they could have fun without alcohol or without violence. They could um, enjoy each other. And so really, for me, I was because I was still in my old world. I was caught between my work world, where I was still with these gangsters, basically, and then uh, every moment of, of the day I could, I would go to the church or go to this these young couple who discipled me. I'd go to their house, and it was simply uh, extraordinary to me. It was marvelous, you know. Wow! Wow! So your life, I guess, and your your decisions and your choices just started changing. I guess you didn't stay in the work that you knew? Or- no, well, several things happened very quickly. I'd only been a believer for about two weeks, and I was encouraged by this couple to go to this Christian camp. I didn't even know what a Christian camp was. And normally, you know, I worked seven days a week, and Monty, the guy that who I worked for, I was his lieutenant, he normally wouldn't, you know, be keen to give me time off. But anyway, for some reason... He let me go, and off I, I went. And and at that camp, God really spoke to me. There was Bible teaching every day. There were games. There were all kinds of things. And I got just turned upside down about the Lordship of Christ, mission. And God spoke to my heart very clearly, and Joyce and I, about we thought that, you know, now that we were Christians, she would get divorced and we would get married. I just thought that was the right thing to do. And then I heard some teaching there that put that into question, and that became one of the first tests of my early Christian life because really we were 
I thought the Lord was asking us to split up. Um, and I did that. And that was very, very hard on us both. But that was the first test of obedience early on in my in my Christian faith. So, Oh, my. And I, I'm curious, the, 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 uh, the folks that you worked with, I imagine they were somewhat surprised by your life change well, and your decisions. Yeah, that's the understatement. They, um, <laughs> well, first of all, they thought I had been brainwashed. So there was a real attempt on their part to try and help me and then to mock the faith. I mean, they would do some ridiculous things like uh, after several weeks of talking, of course, I didn't know anything. And they would ask questions about, well, where is God? And where is Jesus? And where's the proof? And all this kind of stuff. It's a lot of nonsense. You don't need to believe that. And at first, it was out of curiosity. Then it became anger. Then it became a determination to deconvert me. And at one point, they were uh, cutting out all the centerfolds from Playboy magazine and all this kind of thing and post them all over the office. So there were naked women all in our, our office. Um, and it was at that time that I discovered there was a thing called a Christian bookstore, which I never didn't even know existed. And when I went to this Christian bookstore, they had these things called tracks, and you could buy them, you know, whole bunches of them, like 100 for a pound or whatever it was at the time. So I bought hundreds of these tracks, and then I would go back and, and paste them all over these naked women. So <laughs> these tracks. And then when Monty and the guys came in, they would tear off, they tore all the pictures off the wall because of the all these Bible verses all over the top of them. So that the, the literature war started at the beginning, and that went on for a little while, but it stopped fairly quickly. So. <laughs> wow! So, wow. Okay. So there, but they were obviously posing questions to you that you didn't know how to answer, and they were determined to deconvert you and yeah. and deconstruct your faith. I wonder, yeah. did that kind of uh, pushback did that compel you in any determined way to look for those answers that you didn't seem to have at the beginning i think i think in a i think in a in a much more in a curious way because they ask questions and then as i would ask talk to my christian friends they would point me to the bible and say you know show me there were answers and of course as i began to read the scripture i found there were answers so over time i began to read the gospels and to find out what it actually said and the caricatures of christianity I've, i realized that they were thrown were not true so really in the early days it was developing an apologetic in the sense of um I know that you think this is what it says, but that's not what it says. This is what, it, or this is what it means. So part of it was learning to understand. Well, what was the gospel actually about? What did the, what were the claims? And many of the things that they believed, they still rejected the truth. But the I could answer the caricatures fairly readily, and I think that was probably a good school to get me started on my own uh, Christian defense of of how to do evangelism, how to answer um, hard questions in a sense. Mm. You know, I, I can, I can uh, just imagine the skeptic listening to this and listening to your journey and thinking, "Oh, he just found answers to satisfy, you know, the questions, just because he had already converted." You know what I mean? I'm saying that uh, yeah. that you found the answers that were you you were looking for. So I would, I wonder what you would say to the skeptic about that in terms of. I, I know that as you were reading the Bible, that the caricatures, the caricaturing of Christianity was being defeated in your own mind. Um, but for those who who might be pushing back on you still, or pushing back on this story, um, how would you answer that um, 
Yeah. Well, there's two things I would say, Jana. One is, first of all, we need to lengthen the story out. One would be that um, I wasn't finding, and I mean, I wrestled, I had doubts myself. I took the doubts that I had when I came across hard passages in the Bible, and most of them were hard because I didn't understand many of them. I would argue with my Christian friends to try and get an interpretation to understand, so I didn't give them an easy time. But there was this experience of God that was real. It was an, it was an encounter. It wasn't just an idea. The heart of this was there were concepts involved, but I was overwhelmingly gripped by the presence of God and by ongoing answers to prayer. The second part would be as I, my Christian life unfolded, I began to um, deal more with, with the objections and then try to read books because people would, in my first Christian experience, when I went on mission the following year, I was arrested and put in jail in Yugoslavia, taking uh, materials into the communist world, and I was interrogated repeatedly. So these were Marxist people, and I mean, they would come back with political and social and philosophical answers. Um, and I had to learn to uh, think about these things and read books. So over time, I read Marx, I read Nietzsche, I read Freud, and I wasn't, if Christianity was not true, I'm not, I wasn't interested in it. If, this, if someone could talk me out of this by a set of ideas and concepts, then I would give it up. But um, I was willing to expose myself to the thought of others, and I have tried to do that all my Christian life since then. Um, and if there are objections, that doesn't mean you say all the answers I've found have been tidy or nice or neat, but I found that the Christian faith stands up to robust examination, and I don't find that that's a threat. And it wasn't just my emotions. It was my an experience, including my mind, that was involved in my conversion. So. Mm -hmm. Thank you for clarifying that, because I think it could be very easily mis, uh, misinterpreted, I guess. Uh, but yes, I mean, very, very much you're, you're encountering with a person, I guess, the person of God and a strongly and powerful presence um, as well as, like you say, answer to prayer. Mm -hmm. And then it just becomes more fully orbed uh, intellectually and um, and in your heart and in every way. I guess so much so that I'm surprised that you almost, it sounds like almost immediately changed your life from, from the vocation that you had almost into mission. It, it, you must have been strongly compelled. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I, I think... I mean, I really heard, I mean, they use the word a call, but I did hear a call. I was in Monty Ive in Scotland at the time, and, and the preaching to, particularly from Luke 9 and Jesus saying, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And I really knew that was to me, and I had to follow. So I didn't know what that meant, but what eventually I did was I I, um, I sold into my bank accounts. I redid the kitchen at my mum's house so that she could fit that out. I put a coffee bar into our church. I gave the rest to mission and uh, sold everything else I had, my car included, and took a suitcase and joined Operation Mobilization, believing at that point that was it. I was leaving never to go back. That's quite a transformation, I must say, in terms of your own purpose, your own understanding of reality and your who God is, who you are, and your role in the world. It sounds like um, you had found something you wanted others to find as well. I mean, you were willing to give up everything for Jesus and give up everything so that others could know what you knew. Well, because at the heart of this, um, I mean, I had seen 
I, I saw a young man killed before my eyes. I was involved in fights. I saw people, I saw people, you know, on drink and drugs. I saw the worst of humanity in those days, in the early days. Um, and I thought that was reality. It was when I realized that I lived in a world that God created, that there was a God that loved us, a God that knows us, that there is a destiny and a possibility that salvation, not just you know going to churches and being religious or becoming a conservative person, but understanding what we are made for, that there is a type of life and there's eternal life beyond this, that this world is, is not the, the end of the story. It's just a stage in it, but it's important in its own right. Um, I, I mean, I had ended up having categories for truth and goodness and beauty and meaning and family, things that I had just no idea how rich this was. And Christianity was not boring. I mean, the people I was working with were laying down their lives. I had people who died while we were in Vienna because they were missionaries. My, my wife was on a team in Turkey where her team leader was shot dead uh, at the door and his wife um, at the term, nearly at the end of her, her, her pregnancy with her first child. So we, we these were people who were willing to die because of Christ, not just as an idea, as a concept, but as a living reality. So for me, it was an all or nothing. I mean, I, I had found the truth and reality, and I wanted to live my life and share my life and share the truth of this life as I was commanded by the, the Lord with as many as I could uh, for the rest of my days. Wow, that's that's really amazing. It reminds me a lot of of those who in who had been with Jesus at the very beginning and that they they died for what not only that they believed but what they saw, what they believed they saw and had an experience with Christ and they knew it was true. Yeah. And that that mandate or that experience actually in a sense goes on with a with a real God who really exists, who shows his presence when you call. And mm-hmm. um, so you have come a long way. I mean, you're still in the mission field, so uh, yeah. in, in a sense, but in a very different way than being overseas in Yugoslavia. You mm-hmm. you still travel the world. Talk with me a little bit about what you're doing now. Well, I... In my uh, later journey in Europe, I was becoming, I mean, I, I developed in leadership and training in things and would want to speak up in, in, uh, about the Christian faith. So, And uh, I knew about apologetics. I never thought of apologetics as my frontline thing. But, I mean, I was involved in Christian leadership and witness and knew that we had to do that. We had to give a reason for the hope that was in us. And we had to do that against Marxism and existentialism and all the ideas of its time. And in my own journey, I had done a lot of reading and thinking because I had hundreds of hours of conversations with people of uh, faith, no faith or other faiths, um, about the meaning of Christianity and to bring it into the public square. So I was asked to be a public voice for the Christian faith, either helping the thinker to believe or the believer to think. And that's really kind of what I've been involved in for the last uh, 23 years. And we're going to leave this story to tell you about another amazing transformation story that will be featured at the next C.S. Lewis Institute live stream event to be held on Friday, March the 27th at 8 p.m. in the evening. Now, this is one of the most inspiring and amazing transformation stories that you'll ever hear. Dr. Rosaria Butterfield was a tenured professor at a large university before her world was turned upside down when she came 
to believe in the claims of Jesus Christ. She encountered him through meeting an older Presbyterian pastor, Ken Smith, who through his acts of hospitality, honesty, transparency, and loving kindness led her to come to the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ over time. During this session, you'll hear from both of them, and you'll learn practical tips on sharing your faith with those who are different from you. This story of conversion will inspire you to boldly share your faith winsomely and practically, leaving room for God to do the unexpected. So you've, in, you've really dealt thoroughly with and have a, have a really deep understanding of these worldviews around the world, all these competing worldviews in our very, very pluralistic world, but yet you remain convinced that the Christian worldview is worth contending for. Um, we're, we're, we encounter so many of these different worldviews really in our own lives today, no matter where you are, because of the global nature of technology, and yeah. we feel all these different worldviews pressing in on us. Um, yeah, I, 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 I learned we had to do. I had to do my homework. You know, I mean, a lot of this was was uh, reading books and talking to people. So I would ask people, finding out what were the questions that we all had to answer, and looking for ways to compare them. So, I mean, I've talked to many Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists. Um, and of course, atheists in abundance, people coming and, you know, convinced that I am either mentally sick or the target of conversion or whatever. And people sometimes very friendly and meaningful, had some very good just one on odd dialogues with people about the different views of reality, comparing Christianity with, say, a Hindu or a Buddhist perspective, sometimes very politely in India, we've seen that done. But yes, no, the truthfulness of the Christian faith uh, and, it, and it, its ability to answer the question in a way that none of the others do has been one of the reasons why I, I, I remain committed to the Christian faith. I mean, I fully, its coherence, its clarity doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's tidy. Are there things that make us sometimes draw our breath? There, there are passages in the Old Testament and so forth that give us pause. But, you know, the God of the Old and New Testaments is one. And... Um, I, I am fully comfortable in my faith and confident to share it and leave the onus on the individual to weigh it up and and uh, consider the evidence, the facts, and the arguments for the Christian faith if they'll give it an honest look, you know? Mm, mm. And it's it's my hope that there are some curious skeptics or perhaps honest seekers who are exploring or even considering the possibility of God and Jesus Christ through Christianity. If, if there are those listening, what would you say to say a non-believer or a skeptic to, for them to consider the reality of God and Christianity? Well, there's, there's all kinds of books that can be read. And sometimes those are, you know, those are a mixed bag. They're testimonial books, but I, I would always encourage a person to begin with the Gospels themselves and just read, you know, particularly Mark or John's Gospel. Um, and, and then they could, by all means, ask critical questions. But talk to someone who's a believer. Talk to someone in the faith so that let them ask Ask your answer your skeptical questions. We don't we're not afraid as a Christian of of the questions. Is the Bible true? Why should I trust the gospel? But just reading the gospels themselves by the earliest witnesses to the story of Jesus, and they're not all exactly the same. There are four gospels which are like four 
uh, angles looking on on a diamond. Um, and I think the questions will will rise from the text, from the, the what you see in that, and why we believe that Christianity is true, why it is a, a better answer than than um, atheism or the alternatives. Rabbi used to use this idea of origins, meaning morality and destiny, as four questions that every worldview should be answered. We can compare them to what, what it says about origins, what is the meaning of life, is there meaning in life, uh, is there a basis and a ground and a focus for morality, destiny, is there something after death or not? How does the other world system or the person's worldview answer those questions? How does the gospel answer those questions? And when I look at what the Christian answer to those questions are, I find that it offers a compelling reason intellectually as well, well as morally and existentially for a life well lived and to meet God. Because that's what it comes down to at the end of this. If God's just an idea, we're not talking about concept. If there's no God there, there's nothing to ask for. But if we knock at the door and something, someone on the other side answers, then now we're accountable. And that's often the reason why people don't want to even give it a shot. Right, right. Um, and just for just for those who perhaps haven't looked at a Bible before and don't understand the reference of the Gospels themselves, can you explain um, where the Gospels are or what yeah. they are in the Bible? Well, the Gospels are found in the New Testament. If you have a just a simple New Testament, it starts, the first four books are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the Gospels are the recordings of those who witnessed to the life of Jesus and saw the events and particularly contained the teachings. And basically, they're, they're, they're really like a theological biography, if you like, written in an ancient style, of course. But, but to ask the question, each one of them asked the question, who is this? Who is this Jesus? So that's the question that they were written for. And I think if you would read them, and give them a, a, an honest hearing, you would understand then uh, some of the questions that came out uh, uh, as to uh, the, the backstory into which Jesus came, the story of the universe, the story of covenant. What do those words mean? Why were they important? Who, what did Jesus, why did he die? And what difference did that, that, that death make? And resurrection, is resurrection a possibility? And if it happened, what would that mean? Well, those are the questions that the gospels seek to address. And therefore, that's a, always a good place, I think, to start. For the Christians who are listening to your story today, Stuart, how could you encourage them? You just spoke about the the seeker perhaps talking with somebody who actually is living the Christian life. How would you encourage us as Christians to perhaps engage better or or, or understand the questions that are being asked of us? Well, Jenna, there's nothing like being willing to witness to deepen your faith because you have to break the, the sound barrier by talking to people and then be willing to engage their questions. There's so much fear and laziness in, in the church so that we don't share because either we don't know or we don't care enough. I think evangelism, it's not a duty. It's, it's We're called to be witnesses. That's part of what Jesus said in Matthew 20, sent us into all the world to make disciples. So we should be willing to talk to people, to ask them questions, to share the love. And that means we have to do our homework. It doesn't mean to say we have to study theology completely and memorize every sermon. But we will need to do some of our homework over time. Don't be afraid of questions. When someone comes with a question you can't answer, you can go do your homework. Find an answer. But if we love people and we believe that this is the truth, 
And out of compassion and conviction, we should be motivated enough to try to find answers to pass the truth along and not be afraid. And Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always. The Holy Spirit will be with us in our witnessing and how we witness and what we share. So it becomes a part of the adventure of faith and walking with God in this world and being witnesses to his life, to his love, and to his care in the, in, the, in our time. I don't want to end before I give you an opportunity, Stuart, to tell us about a new book that you and your son have written that's about to be published. Would you t- talk with us about that? Yes, my, my son uh, came up with the idea of us writing a book together because I had been we get a lot of questions here and uh, about you know raising kids and the family, particularly in the hostile climate that often is our culture today, movies and music and so forth. So because I was raised in a non-Christian home and then I raised my kids, of course, I was always terrified that I would inoculate my kids against the gospel by maybe my imperfections, my lifestyle. Um, by God's grace, they, they, they trusted the Lord, so we're grateful for that. But the book that we've written together is Faith That Lasts, uh, A Father and Son on Cultivating Lifelong Belief. So what we're doing in the book is to um, talk about some of the questions that we get from Christian parents and some of the what we felt were the mistakes made, particularly three big ones, using fear as a controlling mechanism in the home, believing that information alone saves and uh, trying to bombard your kids just with facts, and then outsourcing children or kids to experts to try and save them or help them or whatever. And really what we want to talk about is the home and the parenting and the role of witnessing and taking the home as a place where hard questions can be dealt with safely in a loving, safe environment. So the book comes out towards the end of the year. It'll be on InterVarsity Press, and we're, we're quite excited and hope it will be a, a conversation starter. Excellent. Excellent. I can't wait to get my hands on that. I know it, it's going to be a wonderful resource for so many Christians and parents alike. So thank you, Stuart. Your story is extraordinary. It really is one literally coming from darkness to, uh, to light to the person of Jesus, um, who is light and life and truth. And wow, I'm inspired by it. Uh, it. You know, sometimes I think that you can prejudge someone or even yourself saying, I'll never change my mind or they will never change their mind. But in your case, that wasn't the case. Uh, it, it's truly <laughs> extraordinary. That, that someone can come from such a place uh, of darkness to an amazing life in Christ. So thank you for sharing that with us. My pleasure, Jenna, and I wish you every success with this. And may God bless the ministry and the opportunities to just talk to people and uh, dialogue about important ideas and ideas that lead to life. Thanks for tuning into the Sci-B podcast to hear Stuart's story. You can find out more about Stuart and his new book, Faith That Lasts, by looking at this episode's notes. For questions and feedback about this podcast, you can reach me by email at the Podcast at cslewisinstitute.org. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and social network. In the meantime, I'll be looking forward to seeing you next time, where we'll be listening to the other side.